Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe and anthropology. Each episode we sit down with a visiting fellow academic or two to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm Timothy Neal, Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and I'm joined by my co-host, David Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. And in this episode, we're continuing the pattern of the last few episodes. So today, I'm your roving correspondent again, uh, having recently attended an anthropology retreat at Moggs Creek, Victoria. Uh, among the anthropologists there was Hugh Gustafson, a professor of anthropology at George Washington University. His most recent book uh, is called Drone, Remote Control Warfare. He's also written numerous other books, including People of the Bomb, Portraits of America's Nuclear Complex, and Nuclear Rights, a weapons laboratory at the end of the Cold War. Having listened to this tape, what I found really interesting is uh, a lot of things. I realised uh, meeting Hugh... Uh, at Moggs Creek, I'd actually seen him on a panel at a conference last year mm. and thought, this guy's work sounds fascinating. I need to get into it. And so by the time I met him, I had read some of it, mm. um, having thought I would never meet him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very handy. Mm. Uh, but what I found really interesting uh, about his work and, and, and talking to him in this conversation is his interest for such a long time in being both an activist and an academic mm -hmm. and being driven by both curiosity and ethical principles, mm. um, which is something that I think, sure, we all, we all have it as a, as a kind of narrative about ourselves, uh, hopefully, mm -hmm. but that he uh, has really thought long and hard about. Um, and it reminded me of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Uh, we got along really well, actually. And it turns out, in fact, that uh, some of his research informants from the Bay Area, from the San Francisco Bay Area anti-nuclear campaign, probably know some of my research informants from the San Francisco Bay Area uh, anti-authoritarian scene in general. Possibly there might even be some of the same ones, although you can never tell because you can't tell each other <laughs> who each other's research informants are. Which is, which is a theme of the interview is secrets. Mm. And mm -hmm. uh, for my own work, I thought what was really interesting is his explaining, you know, having done work on drones nuclear weapons design and mm. now uh the lie detector mm, mm -hmm. you cut you you could choose i mean they'd be in my top five most difficult things potentially <laughs> that's right i mean apart from maybe scientology mm -hmm. or um i don't know uh aliens mm -hmm. just really obscure uh subjects that are obscure in terms of who are the people doing this work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. things that we think about drone warfare nuclear weapons design, mm -hmm. you know, things that are in the public mind, but nonetheless, who are the people behind it? Mm -hmm. uh, what are their motivations? What is their culture? Mm -hmm. um, what are their ideologies? And he talks about uh, in the interview, the, the various links you have to go to, to mm -hmm. try and figure that out when you can't actually, you can't actually be in a nuclear mm -hmm. lab mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. Absolutely. I also really, really appreciated uh, the way that he thinks about what an anthropological epistemology is even doing in those spaces. And in a sense, it's, it's the kind of classic cultural relativism that we're all taught in our very first anthropology class, uh, or cultural anthropology class. But he puts it so beautifully and he thinks so carefully about how to do it respectfully in a space where he doesn't necessarily agree with uh, or align with the people he's talking to. And I think it takes a really careful, empathic approach to be able to speak to the people you, whose work you disagree with and still empathise with them and then go back to the, the activists whose work you do align with and be equally critical of them. And that's a kind of activism that only anthropologists can do and perhaps even only a select few of us. And something else I found interesting, you know, thinking about activism in a different way is this most recent work which he discusses uh, of looking at academic precarity. Mm, mm -hmm. And um, he periodically says, you know, I don't know about Australia. I don't know if this applies to Australia. And I can mm -hmm. say it does, mm -hmm. you know, very much bear <laughs> on um, mm. the temporary labor uh, systems that are taking over Australian academia, seemingly in parallel, in different ways, but in parallel 
uh, to what's happening in America. And I recommend uh, people to go and read the uh, the essay that he, he mentions at the end that's an American ethnologist. Mm. Absolutely. You know, he's such a, a thoughtful, gently spoken fellow, and yet he's really making some, uh, some radical calls. Uh, you know, he makes a point of offering this genealogy of how anthropology has changed over the 20th and now 21st century. Uh, and then at the end, he says, or near the end, he says uh, to new graduate students, don't let anybody tell you this isn't anthropology. Do the thing you care about. And if somebody says it's not anthropology, push on and do it anyway. So he's asking us to think beyond the discipline and, uh, and to be sort of always actively critical uh, of what the discipline thinks it's doing. I should also say, uh, before we get to the conversation, uh, that I make a short reference to a Dead Kennedys song. Um, I really enjoyed this. I did too. I think as anthropologists, and Hugh makes this point at the end, that we should always be engaging with texts out beyond anthropology and folk theories and political theorisation of all sorts, including that of punk rock bands. Just the other day, a senior anthropologist uh, was telling uh, you and I mm-hmm. and many others mm-hmm. to watch more junk movies. Indeed. I do have to say, though, I got one small detail wrong. Uh, the Dead Kennedys song, which is called Well-Paid Scientist, does not make explicit in the lyrics that it's about Lawrence Livermore National Labs. That's an inference one has to make uh, if one learned about this song from one's ex-girlfriend from the Bay Area, whose father worked for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. So uh, I leave it to the audience to tell if I'm right about that inference. Duly noted. (laughs) Okay. So, without further delay, let's get to this conversation with Hugh. So, thank you for joining us uh, here in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. And for those of you listening at home, you may hear the quiet, uh, calming sounds of the ocean in the background. Uh, I'm here with Hugh Gustafson at Moggs Creek in coastal Victoria. So, Hugh, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, And we always start off with an icebreaker question, Uh uh, which is sort of a big open-ended one. So feel free to hit us with your your deepest, darkest personal interests or your uh, most embarrassing anecdotes. But we always start off by asking, how did you get interested in anthropology in the first place? It was a process that took five years or so, I guess. Um, I should say I grew up in a sort of petty bourgeois family in the UK, in suburban Mm -hmm. England, that didn't have a very broad horizon of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a tradition in the UK where you take a gap year between high school and university. Mm -hmm. And in a complicated way, I ended up in Africa for that gap year, I up in Morocco. <laughs> was that a surprise? You just well, one day? I'd, <laughs> I had set out to make it happen. Mm. Um, and I persuaded the Save the Children Fund to send me to a school for kids with polio in mm. Morocco, where I spent six months. And I mean, it really just cracked open my world. If you can imagine being 18, mm. almost never having been outside your county in the UK, you know, let alone outside your country and suddenly uh, finding yourself in Africa. Right. Uh, so when I came back, I, my first degree was in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a moment in the late 1970s when the history of what was called the Third World was beginning to be written and to emerge. And a lot of exciting work was being done on the history of Africa. And so I'd originally intended to do British and European history, but I found myself drawn to all these classes on uh, history of India, history of Africa, history of the West and the the developing world. So that was the first stage. And I planned to do a PhD in history, but uh, I was advised by the people in the UK that I should go to the US and do a master's degree in anthropology Mm. and then come back and do my PhD in history and that with a combination of anthropological and historical training, writing a thesis, on African history, I would be sort of invincible in the job market. Mm. And um, I just found that anthropology was much more fun than history. (laughs) (laughs) That you can actually talk to people instead of being trapped in archives. Mm -hmm. Um, That there's this sort of theoretical underbody to anthropological knowledge. That there wasn't so much to history in those days. I think history's become more theoretical Mm -hmm. since then. So I I stayed in history. Uh, I'm sorry, I stayed in anthropology. Um, Now, I did drop out of one PhD program in anthropology Mm. (laughs) and 
took a two-year leave of absence to work as a political activist in California. Right, right. And this was at a moment in the early 1980s when American-Soviet tensions were at the worst they'd been since the Cuban Missile Crisis, probably, mm. the beginning of a new Second Cold War. Arms control negotiations had broken down. There were huge protests against the nuclear arms race. And so I ended up being drawn into that, that movement and working actually on the staff of the nuclear weapons freeze campaign. And so when I did go back to graduate school, I'd intended to go and do field work in Africa. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I'd become profoundly absorbed into thinking about international relations, about security, about the prospect of human extinction mm -hmm. at any moment, about what the arms race was about, trying to understand it as a cultural phenomenon, not just as a, a political mm -hmm. uh, entity. And so when I went back to graduate school, um, I ended up deciding to do field work at a nuclear weapons lab in the US, trying to understand the ideology and culture of the nuclear weapons scientists instead of becoming an Africanist, which was mm. my original concept. And that's the Lawrence Livermore National Labs, right? Yeah. Yeah, Just yeah. outside San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. The Dead Kennedys is a punk band from that from that area that has a wonderful song about the Lawrence Livermore National Labs. Oh, what's it called? I think I have to go listen to this. Absolutely. There's a wonderful line about the dark uh, underbelly of the American dream staring at you from your bathroom mirror. <laughs> uh, and it's it's a song about a man who has to go and work for the National Labs every day, <laughs> you know, to help produce <laughs> the military industrial complex. <laughs> so I can recommend it to you and I can recommend it to our listeners at home. Perhaps I'll play it at the end of the end of the podcast. Correct. So, which program did you uh, abandon, uh, and um, what led you back to anthropology if you took that time off to be an activist? So, I dropped out of the program at the University of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, which was a fairly conventional four fields program, mm -hmm. and I didn't return there. Had I done that, I'd have had to learn archaeology and physical anthropology and so on. I know in Australia you don't have that four fields mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. I wanted uh, to stay in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I'd moved to, um, so I, I ended up getting my PhD at Stanford, and Stanford was much more of a cultural anthropology program, mm -hmm. and in that context, that sort of writing culture moment in the mid-1980s, mm -hmm. Stanford was right in the thick of that, it was in some oh, ways at the forefront of it, mm -hmm. and so it was a very heady, exciting place to be, where you had this feeling that cultural anthropology was being remade around you. Mm, mm -hmm. You were sort of at the tip of the spear, if you like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of our listeners are graduate students, or we call them HDRs, mm -hmm. in, in Australia, and they're embarking, they're at that moment mm -hmm. uh, in anthropology right now. Do you feel like there's anything, there are any parallels between that moment for you as a graduate student and that moment for the people who might be listening right now? Well, I'm keenly aware that people listening are mainly Australian, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know Australian anthropology well, mm. so I'm very reluctant to, um, to speak as if I have any knowledge about Australian anthropology, which mm. I'm, I'm fascinated by, I'm just getting to, to know it. Um, I might be missing something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't see this fundamental paradigmatic transformation that anthropology went through in the 1980s, where suddenly it was okay to write in the first person, mm -hmm. where you could question the relationship between knowledge and power, where you could deny that anthropology was a science, mm -hmm. where you could do field work in your own backyard instead of having to go somewhere else, which mm -hmm. had been mm -hmm. very difficult to get away with in the US. I think in Australia you have much more license to do what we call repatriated anthropology, but in the US mm -hmm. it was always thought that should be a second or a third project, but never the first project. So there were really a whole set of connected transformations there around the emergence of post-structuralism and cultural critique and so on. I don't see that set of fundamental transformations right now, but maybe mm. I'm, I'm missing something. I'm not necessarily seeing it either, but we are, we're in a similar sort of moment politically. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in the writing culture moment, anthropology was changing you know, off the back of a, a pretty turbulent period of the the 1980s were politically quite turbulent and there was a, a larger discussion that anthropology was part of <laughs> about the culture wars, uh, which what they call in the United States the culture wars anyway, this sort of moment of, um, of intense debate about multiculturalism. There's sort of a post-colonial pushback that registered in anthropology and that was also registering throughout the Reagan-Thatcher years, right? Mm -hmm. So anthropology and the writing culture moment it seems to me like it grew out of that 
political context. <laughs> so we're in a comparable political context right now. And I think the 60s have to be brought in here mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was uh, barely born in the 60s, so it's not like I remember them personally, but um, in American anthropology, the 60s were much more turbulent for the discipline, I think, than the 80s were. Mm. I mean, what is remarkable to me is that this set of structural intellectual transformations were affected in American anthropology with relatively little you know, metaphorical bloodshed. Mm people who have been socialized into one intellectual paradigm, in many cases enthusiastically hired people who destroyed that paradigm. <laughs> they hired a new generation of people whose work they respected, mm. but they were dismantling mm. the work of the people that had hired them. Anthropology right? is dead, long live anthropology. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to exaggerate that too much. There mm. was a lot of contention. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you compare it with a discipline like political science, the older generation that controls international relations, for example, has absolutely refused in mm. the, the leading, most prestigious departments to replace themselves with anyone who's influenced by post-structuralism or feminism. Mm. Mm. They preside over, I'm sorry to say this, but in my view, a, a dying, sterile um, set of intellectual ideas, and they're determined to reproduce it no matter what. Mm. And, and anthropologists didn't do that, uh, to their credit. Mm. The kind of people who who trained me replaced themselves with uh, with with much more sort of postmodern feminist mm. insurgent mm. anthropologists committed to a fundamentally different way of doing anthropology. Now, in the sixties, since I brought up the sixties, the American Anthropological Association was literally torn apart by the Vietnam War, in particular. Right. I mean, there are people after the legendary nineteen sixty eight meeting of the AAA that were never on speaking terms again. And it was, it was the Vietnam War, the alleged complicity of some anthropologists with the military-industrial state in that war, mm -hmm. whether it was right for the AAA to take a position on the, the Vietnam War, those things and the social movements like the environmental movement, the feminist movement mm -hmm. bubbling up around, they really sort of tore the, the discipline apart mm -hmm. in a much more fractious, personal, antagonistic kind of way. Mm. Um, I don't see that antagonism right now, but I think there is that sense that the wider society has gone crazy, that many younger anthropologists felt during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. They felt literally that they lived in an insane society that was stockpiling weapons, killing babies, killing children. Mm -hmm. They were powerless to stop it, that the machinery of democracy had broken down. And I think in American anthropology, there's a, a similar sense right now that mm -hmm. America has gone mad electing Trump, mm -hmm. um, that the American government is doing things that opinion polls show the American people don't want, that the police are totally out of control, acting as like sort of miniaturized death squads mm -hmm. against the bodies of black people. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of profound alienation from the wider society that is, I think, more extreme than in the 1980s. So the the AAA, which for the Australian anthropologists uh, listening who don't know, the AAA is the American Anthropological Association. Uh, I think most Australian anthropologists look to American anthropology as one of their touchstones in many ways. So most people will know that, but some of the some of the students listening won't know. But the um, the AAA now is playing a much different role than it sounds like it it did in '68. Absolutely. You know, there's they've been quick and active in responding to Trump, developing policy statements about the new administration, also about Israel and the, uh, and the Palestinian occupation. Do you think that the, the, these larger bodies, do you think that they're on track in terms of how they're responding? I mean, I know that you've had a lot to do with AAA and have played a, a strong role in some of those responses. Do you feel like anthropology is doing its job right now? I do. I'm sure I have some colleagues who think that the association has gone too far out on a limb, mm -hmm. and I respect that position as well. I mean, there's this eternal debate about academic associations. To what degree should they stick to academics? Mm -hmm. And insofar as they get involved in political advocacy, should they confine that advocacy to advocating for the scientific interests of their members? Mm -hmm. So, for example, advocating against cuts for the budget of the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. I mean, every anthropologist would agree that that's an appropriate lobbying activity by the Anthropology Association. 
I've never met an anthropologist who voted for Trump. I presume there are some. Mm -hmm. I presume some exist, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, some of the things Trump is doing that upset a lot of anthropologists, there may be some anthropologists who support parts of his program. So there's always this question whether a professional association should get involved in politics and whether it's abandoned mm -hmm. some of its members. But, you know, when, when the President of the United States talks about deporting people who are brought to the United States as small children, and it's the only country they've ever known, mm -hmm. and they've lived there for 20 years, 25 years, it's their entire life, they're going to be deported to a country that's allegedly their home country where they don't know anyone, they may not mm -hmm. even speak the language. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of communities that anthropologists traditionally study. Mm -hmm. In my view, we absolutely have a scientific as well as a moral obligation mm. to speak up for those people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the President of the United States says he wants to change immigration policy so we don't have to take people from shithole countries, those so-called shithole countries are the countries that we cultivate friends in, where we've, we've made a life mm -hmm. of explaining the, the dignity and the beauty of life in those countries. Mm -hmm. We absolutely have an obligation to speak out against a president who says things like that. When you have a national security state that wants to put anthropologists in military uniform, arm them, send them into war zones mm -hmm. to collect military intelligence, you have a scientific and an ethical obligation to say that that's not okay, that's a line mm -hmm. that can't be crossed. <clears throat> so I think that the, the sort of uh, activist orientation of the leadership of the American Anthropological Association is absolutely appropriate. Every time we have an election for president, the people who win are the people who say that they stand by that activist orientation and the membership elects them. And I suppose in a way that that comes to define the anthropos. Well for me, and one of the reasons that the discipline drew me in in the first place was that anthropos contained an implicit value of alterity and an implicit valuing of, of the human. I mean we're you know, reaching beyond the human these days. It's sort of anthropos plus now, but there's still an implicit valuing of difference and diversity in that, mm -hmm. which may mean that anthropology in the 21st century is something that it wasn't at the end of the 19th. Well, I think it's still true to Boaz's dream in a funny way. Mm. I teach Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, and in graduate school I never paid much attention to Boaz, but I, mm. I find myself drawn back to him now. I mean, I think he lived and made his career at the outset in a similar kind of moment where mm -hmm. there was turmoil in America over war. Mm -hmm. He was expelled from the AAA for speaking out against anthropologists mm. acting as covert spies. He mm. was censured by the AAA. Right. Uh, there was turmoil over immigration, and he was very outspoken about that. Mm -hmm. um, so you can say that AAA is turning over a new leaf, becoming newly activist, but at the same time, it's going back to its Boazian roots in some ways. Mm. I wonder if this might be a good moment to turn to asking you about how you choose your topics. Mm -hmm. And so... You're working on a project at the moment about polygraph testing, mm -hmm. and I wonder, I mean, please tell us about the, the project itself, mm -hmm. and also where does that fit into the kind of larger arc of how you've chosen your topics over the years? Um, looking back, I can see that I'm very interested in objects or entities that are susceptible to absolutely opposing constructions, neither of which can defeat the other. So to me, nuclear weapons are these genocidal things that may end the human race. But to many of the people that I interview, they're a marvelous invention that have prevented World War III, they've kept the peace in the international system, um, mm. and I can't disprove that narrative, and they can't disprove the anti-nuclear narrative, right? right. Um, so there's this ineradicable ambiguity to nuclear weapons. And so they're fantastic objects to think with. And when you ask people to talk about them, they produce sort of um, unfolding spirals of discourse. And the polygraph, in a funny way, is the same thing. I assume that Australians don't pay much attention to the polygraph. It hardly exists in, in, mm. in Australia. Mm. But, but in we the US, American fiction, so we know about lie detectors. <laughs> in the US, it's quite widely used. It's illegal to use it in the private sector. Private mm. companies are legally banned from polygraphing their employees. Mm. So it's unreliable and it's junk science in the private sector. But if you work for the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, a nuclear weapons lab, mm. or a police department, you will lose your job or you will not get a job if you fail a polygraph test mm -hmm. in all, all likelihood. Um, polygraph evidence is banned in court in most American states. Mm -hmm. 
So it's got this really weird status where it's sort of absolute truth if you work in some parts of American mm-hmm. society, and it can't be trusted mm. if you work in other parts of American society. So I, I find it very interesting. The way I got interested in it in the first place is actually through field work at Los Alamos, the nuclear weapons lab in New Mexico. And in 1999, there was this moment where the Clinton administration had become concerned that there was a Chinese spy at Los Alamos, and they were trying to hunt down this spy. And it came to light that weapon scientists had been disregarding security rules. Mm. They'd been making copies of secret information. Um, They'd been keeping top secret disks in their offices when they weren't allowed to and stuff like that. And so the FBI descended on the weapons lab and started interrogating these weapon scientists and polygraphing them. Hmm. And the US government changed its rules and said that in future, people at the weapons labs would be regularly polygraphed. Right. And until then, that had never been the case. We came very close to a national strike of American nuclear weapon scientists. They were so enraged and furious about this. And they were so convinced that the polygraph was a form of witchcraft, that it was junk science. Hmm. So I'd never really thought much about the polygraph until then, but it it suddenly became very interesting to me. And if you follow it, you suddenly start to see it leading all sorts of directions. Mm. I recently went to a court case where a guy who'd won a $2 million prize for catching a fish mm-hmm. had the prize taken away from him because he failed a polygraph. Huh. Um, he had to pass a polygraph that said he didn't cheat, and he <laughs> failed, so he lost the, the $2 million. You turn on American TV, as you indicated, and you'll mm-hmm. see the polygraph in Hollywood shows, there are reality TV shows where people who think their husband is cheating on them can get their husband polygraphed mm. on TV mm-hmm. and find out live whether he's really cheating on them or not. Mm. So it just sort of leads into pop culture, to the national security state, mm-hmm. um, to sport fishing, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. to people's marital relationships. And underlying it all is this fascinating question of what we think a lie is. I mean, is it a quantum? Mm-hmm. Is it like this objective entity that sits in your brain and a machine can ferret it out and mm-hmm. say, yep, that was a lie? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I have a much more constructivist way of looking at a lie that it mm. emerges out of interactions, mm. that there might be things that it's not clear whether they're truth or lies. Mm-hmm. Um, so at stake, ultimately, is something very fundamental about the ontology of the world, about the difference between truth and, and mm. non-truth. But so, for example, if you want to work for a police department in the U.S., mm-hmm. they will polygraph you, and one of the questions they often ask is, have you committed a crime? <laughs> <laughs> to which everybody says with a, a halo over their head, right? Absolutely not, officer. Well, I watch one of these polygraph tests, and you know, sometimes people say, well, you get questioned before they strap you in. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a get acquainted questioning. Mm-hmm. And so someone would say, well, many years ago I smoked marijuana. And the guy says, that's okay, as long as it was many years ago, we don't care. But when it comes up in the test, you should tell the truth about that. Right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, have you smoked marijuana or not? That's, okay, that's, that's pretty clear. Except, what if you smoke marijuana in the Netherlands, where it's not illegal, but you're a U.S. citizen? Mm-hmm. Was that a crime? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It sounds like what makes these narratives, uh, both with the bomb, with the polygraph, what makes them uh, so crucial is that they're all tied to power, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps even more so with the polygraph, but they're, they're all questions of an authoritative, like a, an instrument that's backed by an authoritative mm-hmm. narrative that's backed by power. And whose reliability is contested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even with nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. the actual technical reliability of the weapons, would they go off when you press the button, mm. has been a, a matter of intense debate between weapon scientists at some point. Mm. So for an anthropologist of science, it's interesting. So, you know, to go back to the polygraph, say you stole some office supplies, is that a crime? I mean, most people have an asterisk in their mind with that. Well, <laughs> you know, taking some pencils from the supply cabinet at the university, that's not really theft. Is it? I, I don't know. I will not speculate. <laughs> but to you, is it a crime? Well, to me, um, I always tell my students I'm about two-thirds an anarchist. <laughs> From an anarchist point of view, it's only a crime if you get caught. Um, I'll never think about it. So if you're a would-be police cadet as an yeah. anarchist and you ask them if they've ever stolen, they mm. may truthfully say no. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so can I ask then, because you've also gravitated towards talking about militarism in various ways. You know, so you've written about drone strikes, mm -hmm. you've written about the bomb. I guess I'd like to ask a methodological question mm -hmm. about in all these moments when you're trying to get to the heart of uh, kind of Schrodinger's cat of a narrative where it, it must be true and yet it can't be true because somebody else's narrative must be true. How do you do, how do, you do the ethnography of that? So before I answer the sort of ethnographic question, let me say in terms of the anthropology of militarism, when I was in graduate school in particular, I felt that militarism really didn't get the attention and respect it deserved in anthropology. You know, when I looked at the grand sort of structural systems that anthropologists wrote about back in the 80s, capitalism obviously, mm -hmm. colonialism, gender, it's very little theorizing of militarism by anthropologists, very little fieldwork that explicitly addressed militarism as a categorical context and experience. And so one of the reasons I got into this was my annoyance <laughs> that the kind of activism that really mattered to me, anti-militarist activism, um, barely sort of registered as a blip on the anthropological radar. Mm -hmm. uh, I think American anthropology has come a long way since then. There's now a very, very rich um, literature mm -hmm. on militarism in all sorts of contexts. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still a long way to go. So. Any graduate students who are listening, um, we need an ethnography of Pine Gap. Mm, absolutely. We need, you know, mm -hmm. anthropologists going collecting memories of British nuclear testing at Maralinga. Mm. Uh, the Australian military is getting into drones right now. Mm -hmm. And the Australian police. Uh, we need to, to find out what, that, what that's about, right? Absolutely. Uh, how Australian military officers think about their relationship with the US. Uh, what ambivalences they have. It's a wonderful set of topics that Australian anthropologists could, could explore. Okay, so you asked if you're committed epistemologically to respecting the ambiguity of military objects, right? Well, and also in the brute sense of where do you go, who do you talk to, and how do you, how do you design a field project that does mm -hmm. that? Right. And I have to say that's getting harder. I'm not sure that I could now do the field work I did at the nuclear weapons lab in the 80s if I weren't sort of grandfathered in. Mm -hmm. You know, they know me now and so they'll talk to me. Um, but I worry that a younger anthropologist would find it harder. The national security state in the US at least is much less friendly to inquisitive outsiders than it used to be. Um, to state the obvious, it can be quite difficult to physically access military sites. They may be secret. Um, even if they're not secret, they don't like outsiders going in there. So I was sort of forced to innovate methodologically mm -hmm. when I did my study of Lawrence Livermore. I didn't actually spend much time inside the lab. There weren't many parts of the lab I could go to. There was a cafeteria I could go to, and I used to go and eat lunch there and try and pick up weapon scientists and sort mm -hmm. of watch what they were up to and who ate with who and so on. And, you know, there was sort of a, a mini museum that you could go to and things like that. But mostly I did my field work on the outside looking in. So you have to think of sort of remote ways of um, understanding what's happening from outside the fence. I collected a lot of life histories from people, mm -hmm. talking to them in their homes. I spent a lot of time in churches and bars, trying to talk to people there. I um, talked to a lot of lab spouses, trying to understand what it was like being married to someone mm -hmm. at, at the lab. Um, so it may not be classic participant observation. You may be forced to rely a lot on written sources and on talking to people sort of outside the, the physical space you're trying to understand. But plenty of people have done this in different ways. I mean, I think of someone like Kathy Lutz in the US, mm -hmm. who's done a, um, an ethnography of a US military base, but without sort of going in there. Mm. So in addition to the security concerns, how do you think about organizational ethnography? How do you think about situating yourself within an organization? So writing about it that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fine. There's, um, there's an anthropologist in the US called Laura McNamara, um, who for her PhD research on the Los Alamos nuclear Wep weapons lab, she got a job in the lab. Mm -hmm. And she got clearance. And she got access that I could only dream about. Uh, now, unfortunately, she's not published very much of it because then she stayed within the nuclear weapons complex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she wrote a great thesis, but not many people have, have read it. Uh, and it never mm -hmm. got published. Uh, but that is, that is certainly another strategy. Now, in her case, if she wanted to publish, 
the U.S. national security state would have control over what she published. They'd have the right to dictate that she remove things that they didn't like, and she would have no recourse against that. Mm. Once you get a clearance, you agree to submit to that kind of control, and it seems pretty clear to me that your work is not only redacted to remove classified information, but it's censored. The things that the national security state doesn't like, that may not be technically secret, end up getting removed. Mm. So there's a price that you would pay for that strategy of access. Mm. But it would certainly be um, another way of doing it. And you've, in various ways, run into state surveillance of, of your own work, right? Not really that I know of. I mean, I assume, I assume that um, intelligence agencies have files on me. I assume mm. not just American ones. I did some field work with Russian nuclear weapon scientists. I assume that in my home country of Britain, there's been some tracking of my work by the state, I, but I've never seen evidence of it, so I don't know. Mm, okay. Well, I, I hope you never have to. <laughs> um, one of the things I appreciate about your work is that it is, it is strongly advocacy-oriented. Um, and I think I've, I've heard you call yourself an activist, if not referred. Is that right? Um, I won't object. <laughs> okay. Um, but at the same time, you, there's always the danger of being an activist in academics' clothing yeah. and writing essentially hagiography. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a very important observation. So can you tell us more about finding a way of, of doing advocacy without, I suppose, without falling into a camp or yeah. without, without falling into a, a narrative that, that is your, already your objective study? So I'll say two things here. Um, one thing is that when you write about people you disagree with, if you're an activist, you may caricature them. Mm -hmm. You don't give them a fair shake, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, you try and undermine their worldview. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's acceptable for an anthropologist to do that. And in my case, I've been privileged to have friendships and relationships of trust with nuclear weapons designers. Now, it's a community whose project I don't support in the ultimate sense, but I know them as individual people. I respect many of them. Mm -hmm. um, I know that they have their own ethical concerns that um, afflict them, mm -hmm. that they care deeply about, right? And that they're in their own light trying to do what they see as the right thing. And I think when I write about them, it's really important that I acknowledge their worldview and any critique has to begin by acknowledging where they're coming from mm. and not caricaturing it. And so a kind of activist anthropology that just says, you know, they're crap, you know, they're a menace to the future of the human race, and mm. doesn't start by explaining how they understand their own world. Mm -hmm. I might even call that unethical, it's certainly unprofessional. You know, I, it's not the kind of anthropology that I would respect. So I think it's okay for anthropologists to write with a clear political and ethical commitment. And in some ways, I think it's dangerous if they don't acknowledge their ethical and political commitments mm -hmm. because they seep out in ways, and it's more honest in a way to say where you're coming from. Right? But you also have to acknowledge your opponent's worldview and that it has its own sense, even if you don't agree with it. And I think that the work of anthropology is partly to reframe things. That's all anthropologists do. They listen to people, they watch people, and then they write it up in a way that reframes it. If you just attack it, that's pointless. But if you just repeat it without reframing it, you're not doing any analytical work. You're not adding anything to it, mm. right? And I think we have to reframe the work of our allies as well as our, as our opponents. Mm. So in my first book, Nuclear Rights, I not only did a study of the nuclear weapon scientists, but I interviewed lots of anti-nuclear activists people in the movement that I had originally come from. So the last two or three chapters of the book are actually reframing the anti-nuclear movement and showing in a sort of Foucauldian frame ways in which they've constructed their own apparatus of power, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing their own work on people's cognition, on people's culture. Mm -hmm. They're controlling people in their own way. They don't have the resources that the national security state has, mm -hmm. but they have resources. There are certain things that you can't say. You'll be in trouble if, mm -hmm. in the movement if you say them, right? Certain things you can't do. So they've got their own you know, mechanisms of power. And I felt that it was important to analyze that and point that out. I did this kind of funny, I, I heard that one of the anti-nuclear activists in the movement I'd written about mm -hmm. um, said, yeah, 
I read his book. I read the stuff about the anti-nuclear moment. It's all true, and I hate him for saying it. <laughs> <laughs> that gives me real heart to hear, actually. You know, because of course I write about social movements too, yeah. uh, and for the most part, I write in solidarity uh, with and as a native of the movements that I've been writing about. And yet, you can't write hagiography. It, it mm. wouldn't feel honest or useful to write hagiography. And I don't know if you've had this experience too, but it can be really lonely. Yes. You know, you, you talk to a certain set of people who you don't necessarily want to identify with and, mm-hmm. and you have to take a step out of your identity mm-hmm. uh, and, and towards them. And then you talk to the people who you, who you call home to a certain extent, a political yeah. home or even a community, uh, and you have to step away from them. Yeah. And often, often you burn bridges simply in the act of doing that. I couldn't put it any better. And it's, it's, yeah. very, it's quite painful. I mean, there are anti-nuclear activists who think I betrayed the movement. So it's difficult to be an anthropologist and an activist because mm. if you're an anthropologist, you have to complicate the world and your accounts of it. But I wouldn't have done it any other way. Mm. And there's no other honest way of doing it, as far as I can tell. So then here's, I suppose, where I want to start thinking about advice that you might have, especially since so many of our listeners are new graduate students and new HDRs mm-hmm. and they're embarking on their project. And we've just told them what a lonely, bleak path it can sometimes be to live by your, <laughs> to live by your convictions as an anthropologist. I suppose, how would you suggest the students formulating their projects right now think about their ethics and how to build their ethics into their project, but to do so responsibly, and potentially to do so safely and productively in this particular institutional environment? Well, so again, I'm keenly aware that I'm coming from the US context Mm. and advising Australian graduate students in a very different institutional complex and I would not want to give advice that ruined people's career. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll pretend I'm talking to American graduate students. Great. If the advice works for Australians, fine. Mm. Um, So one thing I would say is if you're passionately interested in something and you Mm -hmm. want to write about it, don't let anyone tell you it's not anthropology. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way anthropology enlarges itself and grows is by finding new objects of interest that by definition at the moment that they're new there are people who say don't look at that that's not anthropology Mm. so when as a grad student i said oh i think i'm going to go and study this nuclear weapons lab there were senior faculty in my department who said that's not anthropology unfortunately there were other senior faculty who said well it is now Mm. Um, and he should do it Um, and and that's how anthropology grows so the important thing is to write about something that really speaks to you, mm. something that you're passionately interested in. And whatever that is, don't just read anthropologists about it. Mm. Read outside anthropology, read fiction about it, read political mm. scientists on it, read sociologists and historians on it, mm. and translate what they've written back into an anthropological frame. Mm. That's another way that anthropology grows, I think, is by taking frames and modes of knowledge from outside the discipline and sort of domesticating them. I am thrilled to hear you say that because it's really easy, to, especially as a graduate student, to forget that. Uh, you know, you're constantly being reminded that there's this and this and this member of the canon who you ought to read, and there are this you know, exponentially multiplying number of other anthropologists who've had something to say about something similar. And you know, in Australasia, we talk about the silo effect, mm-hmm. which is partly a funding effect. It's partly an effect of the structure of the institution. Uh, and we can forget to read each other's work, and we can forget to read across the disciplines, and we can forget to read beyond the university. Mm-hmm. But that's where the most exciting stuff comes from, I think, is when we, anthropologists, I think, more than anybody, can draw all of that together. Mm-hmm. So thank you for saying that. And let me say one more thing about this moment in the academy, uh, which I'm sure has a different shape to it in Australia, but I think not an unfamiliar shape. So. I think traditionally anthropologists with political commitments and an activist orientation could use the university as a safe base from which to go out and do work with refugees, mm-hmm. um, battered women, migrants, you know, mm-hmm. factory workers, whatever. My sense is that the university is increasingly an unsafe space. I don't mean mm-hmm. that in the way the women's movement uses mm-hmm. that term, though you know, I, I respect their, their critique of ways in which people of color and women feel unsafe in the university. 
but I mean fundamentally institutionally. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the institution of tenure is under attack. Mm -hmm. It's increasingly difficult for people who've done truly excellent work to find an institution that will make a lifetime commitment to nurture them mm. and protect their right to academic freedom and free speech. Mm -hmm. um, increasingly, people are hired on rotating contracts for a half or a third of the salary that their forebears would have been paid. Mm -hmm. And so um, I recently had an article on this in the American Ethnologist on how anthropologists need to think about the university itself as a social organization, a political space, a cultural milieu, and think about it not only analytically, but organized to protect it. Mm -hmm. The way we've organized in the past to protect vulnerable populations. We are, as academics, becoming a vulnerable population whose security to think freely and critically mm. is now endangered by the intrusion of capitalism into our home space. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a really important intellectual project to think about that, mm -hmm. and it's a really important organizational project to protect the university mm -hmm. as one of the last spaces in the world where fundamentally critical work can be done. And I lament the loss of people who never started too, people who finished their PhD and because their work is in some ways because their work is too innovative, mm -hmm. they don't find a home in the university and then they, uh, they venture on out and presumably do something else equally mm -hmm. brilliant, but not here. Mm -hmm. Goodness, that's a bleak note to end on though. I don't want to end on a bleak note. Uh, are there moments in the university where you see people militating against that? I think we're at an early stage. I don't know where it's going to lead. In the American context, I now see people publishing more about this. Anne Alliston at Duke has organized a big panel for this year's Anthropology Association meetings on this very issue, contingent mm. labor, rethinking the university curriculum and so on. Mm. I think what's problematic is that academics are very individualistic. They don't organize themselves into unions mm. and things mm -hmm. like that. I think we have to get over that because that's the way we get divided against each other and mm -hmm. picked off. right? Mm -hmm. So we need to think much more in terms of solidarity strategies mm -hmm. um, and often the administrators who are imposing contingent labor contracts and so on and mm -hmm. um, metrics that force us to publish in certain kinds of journals rather than where we might want to, to publish they're people who came out of our departments they're our colleagues they're often people we like they're following an institutional logic that they're not mm -hmm. able to contest mm -hmm. and we don't want to be rude to you know people who've been our friends mm. so through those friendships, oppression gets intensified in a way, right? But I think universities have to talk about producing fewer PhDs. Mm -hmm. The overproduction of PhDs puts universities in a very strong bargaining position mm -hmm. when it comes to hiring. If there were fewer PhDs, they wouldn't be in such a strong bargaining position. I think it's fundamentally inhumane to deliberately train people knowing that you're producing this massive surplus mm -hmm. that will undermine your own students' bargaining power. Mm -hmm. And with such debt too. Unfortunately yeah. um, that's not quite the case in Australia. Mm -hmm. Many of the trends that you're talking about are also trending in Australia but not they haven't arrived yet mm -hmm. um, or not to that degree. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was encouraged in the last few years in the US to see that uh, contingent faculty unions had had a few wins across the country. And that seems like maybe a, an encouraging way that, uh, that the wind is blowing. I wonder what your own work will turn to in the future then. Do you have a sense of where in the changing university your work will move? There's a big movement in US anthropology right now towards public anthropology. Mm -hmm. And I find grad students are particularly interested in public anthropology. The Anthropology Association is really pushing people to organize panels on that. Mm -hmm. Sapiens, this big new website underwritten by Vanagran has appeared that's trying to um, put high-end public anthropology out there in the public domain. I think that's a very exciting development. I'm really committed to finding ways that we can talk um, without sinking into our specialized elitist language, talk to a much wider audience and bring the really exciting perspectives and ideas that anthropology has mm. to a broader audience. So that's, that's certainly something that I can see. And for my own work, when I had kids, it became harder to write long-form pieces. Mm -hmm. It became harder to find six hours at a time where you could sit down and work on a, a book. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I started to find that more 
miniaturized pieces was the sort of thing that you could write between when your kids left the school and came home. <laughs> and that's sort of the, the ideal form for public anthropology, something mm. that's about 900 words, right? And I, I think increasingly people don't have the patience and the time to read really long pieces. There will always be a place for books, there will always be a place for referee journal articles, but I'm also interested in these short-form pieces that are not so intensively refereed, that could be put out in the public sphere very quickly to react to something that happened yesterday, um, as a space that anthropologists need to move into. Now the problem is that universities don't have a reward system that gives people credit for that. Mm -hmm. You get credit for the refereed book, you get credit for the refereed journal article, you don't get credit for the op-ed that was published in the Washington Post. And I would really like to see universities rethink their reward system. Mm. Mm. I think a lot of us here in Australia would as well. And that seems like a possibility. That seems like one demand that we could make that we might be able to find traction on. I mean, am I being naive about that? No, not necessarily. Okay. And I think universities are aware that they rely on taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. um, so it's in their interest for their faculty's knowledge to get out there in the public sphere. And a lot of universities have written into their, uh, their mandate a commitment to engagement somehow. Mm -hmm. And that might often be interpreted as engagement with industry. Mm -hmm. And it might often be interpreted as engagement with funding streams, but engagement means public engagement too. So I think that's one of the places where we can leverage. Well, Hugh, thanks very much. I, I have had a fantastic time sitting here chatting. I hope it you was have a privilege well. for me. I, well, I appreciate the invitation so much. Well, we feel exactly the same way. And we will see the rest of you in the next episode. And we will see Hugh the next time he comes to Australia. Thanks for joining us here in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Uh, this episode featured a conversation with Hugh Gustafson, a professor of anthropology at George Washington University. If you'd like to learn more about his work, you can find his regular columns in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and also Sapiens, an online anthropology journal. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter at, at TDNeil and at DHBorderGiles or at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology. We'll die, shattered up the delays, stop the American dreams.